Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. It is a hard time. There's no denying that. And the task of the preacher during our hard time is to bring a word of hope. And I believe that today I have a word of hope. I call it what to do on the worst day of your life. 27 years ago, 1993, 27 years ago, 1993, I don't know, is Ann Huffman here today? She's okay, but she's online. Hello, Ann. Ninety-three, twenty-seven years ago, Ann Huffman and Gary and Ann have been in our church from before the beginning, and Ann was my assistant at that time, and she remarked to me, I don't know if she remembers this, she probably doesn't, and she just said, you know, a lot of people are going through a hard time right now. That's what she said. And that kind of just stuck with me. A little later, I was getting ready to go home. This was, this was when we were on Frederick Avenue. How many of you remember Frederick Avenue? A few of you? Okay. And I was at the top of the stairs, you know, where the sanctuary was, and then you have to go down to get out of the building. I was at the top of the stairs, and a flash of inspiration came to me. I thought, well, yeah, a lot of people are going through a hard time. And I remembered remembered that story out of 1 Samuel 30, where David had a bad day. And that came to me. And I thought, well, I could... uh, I could work with that. I could, I could preach on what David did on his bad day and how maybe we can follow his example and find our way out of, out of the hard time. And so I called the sermon, What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life. You know, just a little title for a sermon. And I preached it on December 17, 1993, on a Friday night. It wasn't even a Sunday morning sermon. Friday night. And it's funny, I've already talked to some people here today who were there uh, back then. And so, you know, it was, just, it was just another sermon. I got a lot of them. <laughs> and, but, but this one seemed to resonate with people differently. To me, it was just another sermon, but it, it didn't turn out to be that. Um, this was back in the era of cassette tapes. And so it began to spread, I almost said like a virus, but that would, that would evoke a bad feeling. It began to spread like something good <laughs> through, through cassette tapes. And back in those days, you know, all the churches had their tape duplicators. If you got one, you could just duplicate more. And it began, they began to spread across the country and then into other countries. And I started getting letters just from one little sermon I preached in St. Joseph, Missouri on a Friday night. I, got, I remember getting letters from the Philippines, from India, from Nigeria. And I hadn't been to any of those places yet. Later on, I would, but at this point, I'd never been to any of those places. But I got letters about how this had helped people and it had brought them through hard times. And people tell me, I've listened to it, you know, uh, 50 times. I'm like, really? <laughs> and uh, finally, some people said, uh, well, I tell, you, I tell you who it was. It was, uh, it was Linda Buckles. She might be watching, probably is. Uh, Linda Saunders, remember? Linda Saunders, Linda Buckles. And she, uh, she said, you need to write a book about that. You need to turn that into a book. So I said, well, all right. And in 1997, I went to a residence inn in Kansas City, took in a desktop computer, a pack of salami, a loaf of bread, and wrote a book in three days. (laughs) You say, can you write a book in three days? Yeah, you can. 
Not a very good one, actually, but you know. So I wrote a book in three days, called it What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life, printed 5,000 copies, and we sold out of them, and I forgot about it. I just forgot about it. Time rolls on, and in 2008, in December of 2008, 11 years after the book, and whatever it would be, I can't do the math in my head, many years after preaching the sermon, I got a phone call from Jensen Franklin, who I knew, and he said, Brian, I want to thank you for writing that book. I'm like, what book? <laughs> what to do on the worst day of your life? Oh, yeah, that one. He said, uh, I've been through some hard times, and my wife and I both read it. We read it twice. It really helped us. I said, well, I'm glad. Thank you for sharing that with me. He said, what did you ever do with that book? I said, I printed 5,000 copies. sold out a long time ago. I haven't thought about it in years. He said, well... Are you interested in, in finding a publisher for it? I said, not really. <laughs> he said, well, do you mind if I make some calls? I said, you can do what you want. Well, eventually, a publisher was, tracked me down and said, we want to we print this book. We want to publish this book. We want to put it out there. We're going to feature it and bring it out and make a big you know, promotional campaign around it. I said, well, let me think about it. And so I, I then read it. I read the one that I'd written in three days in the residence inn, and I, I didn't like it. I thought it was, yeah, I didn't think it was very good. And so I told him, I said, no, I don't think so, because it's not very good. And they said, well, it's great. So there was this weird moment of the author telling the publisher his book's no good, and the publisher going, that's great. <laughs> and that went back and forth. And finally I said, all right. I said, well, if you'll let me rewrite it, uh, then, then you can publish it. And I remember they said, well, don't change very much. And I, I probably changed every sentence, but I kept, I kept the chapter titles the same and then reworked every sentence, and I had like two weeks to do that, and I did most of it in Rome. It's a very romantic story, but uh, I, I, wrote, I rewrote most of it in Rome, and I remember the last thing I did was write the introduction to it after I was done. I remember sitting by this little fireplace in this hotel in, in Rome and, and then send and send it off to the publisher, email, and... Uh, and this book came out in 2009. The last time I preached on this was at that time, February, March, whatever it was, of 2009. Um, two weeks ago on Monday, when I, when I woke up, the first thing I thought was, a lot of people going through a hard time. They need a word of hope. Maybe it's time for me to preach what to do on the worst day of your life again. So that's what I'm going to do. Now, in the book, there's 10 chapters because, you know, I say David did 10 things and there's 10 things you, 10 ways, you know, to respond to the worst day of your life. I'm only going to preach five of them. This is 2020. This is not 1993. I'm not going to preach an hour and 15 minute sermon. <laughs> uh, you can get the book if you want to get all of them, but I'm going to preach five of them. And I think that'll do. First Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag, burned it down, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed none of them, but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned down and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. This happened 
just about 3,000 years ago. When David was 29 years old, he was the hero of Israel. He'd been the hero ever since he had prevailed over Goliath of Gath in the valley of Elah with his slingshot. He rose to national prominence. He was the hero of Israel, but this created a problem with King Saul, who was jealous. And when the big hit song turned out to be, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands, then Saul became possessed with a spirit of jealousy and developed a bad habit of throwing spears at David. And so David had to get out of town. David eventually attracted, because he was that kind of person, he attracted a group of men to him that became his followers. And uh, at this time, they're living in southern Judea. They're hiding out from Saul is what they're doing. And they're living in southern Judea in a little town called Ziklag. They've been there for a year and four months. They had been in a town called Aphek. They'd been on one of their raids. They'd been there for some time, and now they're coming back home. It's a three-day journey from Aphek to get back to Ziklag. They've been gone for a while, and they're excited to get home. You know, get back home to their wives and to their children. They're anticipating joyful reunions. But as they draw near on the third day to Ziklag, they notice on the horizon ominous columns of smoke. And their conversation begins to cease they begin to pick up their pace. Their heart begins to race. Anxious thoughts flood their mind. And indeed, when they reach the city, they find an absolute calamity, a catastrophe, a tragedy. While they were gone, the Amalekites had raided, had stolen all of their herds and flocks, that is, their wealth. They had torched the city. And worst of all, they had kidnapped the people, which was the wives and the children of David and his men. That's a bad day. You come home from some trip, and you find out, first of all, that your house is burned to the ground. And while you're trying to process that, someone informs you, oh, yeah, and by the way, all of your wealth somehow has been stolen. Your bank accounts are empty. You have nothing. And while you're doing that, the FBI shows up and informs you that your family has all been kidnapped. That's a bad day. Certainly one of David's worst days anyway. So what do you do on a day like that? Well, this is what David did. Number one, weep. 1 Samuel 30, verse 4, Then David and his men wept until they could weep no more. David and his mighty men. These are his mighty men. You've heard of David's mighty men. That's who these are. David and his mighty men wept until they had no more tears to shed. What do you do when life hits you so hard? Well, first of all, don't pretend that everything's all right. Let's not have any of this silliness, you know. You're going through the worst period of your life or one of the worst periods of your life. How are you doing? Blessed and highly favored of the Lord. Thank you very much. To live by faith is not to live without feelings. To live by faith is not to deny the emotional realities that are going on on the inside of us. 
Faith is not fakery. It's not pretense. It's not denial. That's not faith. Jesus was a man of sorrows. Jesus was acquainted with grief. Jesus wept. Right? Because he was fully human. You know, we've learned to confess that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. Not part God, part human, but fully God and fully human. But if Jesus never wept, we would always be suspicious. Is he really fully human? Because a person that doesn't weep, I think their humanity is suspect. And so on this very bad day, the very first thing that David and his men did was to weep. You know, before Jesus wipes away all of our tears, and the Scripture says that's how it's going to end, He's going to wipe away all tears. But before Jesus wipes away all tears, He weeps with us. He joins us in our sorrow. He shares it with us. One of the ways we help people is when we can weep with them. When real tragedy hits, there is a certain amount of grieving that needs to be done. It's just a task. You, can't, you, can, you can put it off, but at some point it has to be done. But here's the good news. You don't have to do it all alone. People and friends can gather around and can help you in the task of grieving and sorrowing. And so Jesus even weeps with us. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, only the suffering God can help. And it is in Christ that God joins us in our human sorrow and participates in it with us. So don't put on a brave face or a fake face. Don't, don't put on a mask. Yeah, put on a mask, but you know what I'm saying. Everything's got double meanings these days. Put on that mask, but don't put on the mask of denial. That you're going through something bad and hard and it hurts. Uh, don't put on a brave face. Don't deny it. Don't pretend. But go ahead and just live into that sorrow because that's part of how you're going to get beyond it. Okay, number one, weep. But number two, don't get bitter. Verse six, David was greatly distressed, for his men were bitter and spoke of stoning him. Weep, but don't get bitter. Give expression to the pain, but don't get bitter. One of the ways that we get tempted to deal with real pain is to blame someone else. It's kind of, and it, it does, in a weird way, for a time, it does alleviate some of the pain. Because you're feeling all this pain on the inside, and then you project it on someone else. But it's like a painkiller that is addictive and can ruin your life. You keep taking that kind of you keep trying to, you deal with pain in that way, by just blame, by projecting it on other people. Uh, you have developed an addiction that can just destroy you. So David has his, his, his men, 600 of them. He's kind of a chieftain warlord kind of guy. And he's got these 600 men. Where did they come from? Well, while David was fleeing from King Saul, hiding out in the Judean mountains, in those rugged Judean mountains, for a while he was, he was living in the cave of Adullam. 
and men from around that area who are described as in debt, in distress, and discontent gathered to him. These were not people that were winning in life. These were not people who were at the top. These were people who were in debt. They were in distress. They're discontent. They don't have any money. They're poor. They're very aware of their problems. They're very frustrated with life. And yet they're attracted to David because he seems to have a vision. He seems to be someone that can rise above that. And they're attracted to him. And indeed, they begin to form a new identity. And they rally around this this anointed, charismatic young man, and they begin to have purpose and meaning in their life. David has done a lot for them, but now in this moment of crisis, they turn on David, which is one of the perils of leadership. David hasn't done anything wrong. It's not his fault, but that's part of the role of leadership. Sometimes you become the, I don't know if it's the role of leadership, but it's part of what happens. You can then become the target of scapegoating, of blaming. And so, They have developed a root of bitterness. Don't do that. Don't do that. Bitterness keeps you identified with your loss. See, pain and sorrow and grief is really ultimately all about some form of loss, which is some form of death. And so something is lost. We've lost something in our lives. Something is gone, and there's this pain, and we, uh, if, if we, if we, if we become bitter through blame, what we're doing is we are we're making that loss our identity, and it's a negative identity. And we go through life as, I'm the one that was hurt. I'm the one that's been abused. I'm the one that's been cheated. And we start living into that, and we get stuck in it. Don't do that. It's, it, it's that phenomenon of developing a bitter spirit will take you off the road to recovery. It can just be the end of the story. And that becomes the story for the rest of your life. And everybody you meet, let me tell you my bitter tale. It becomes your identity. Don't do that. Number three, encourage yourself in God. Again, the end of verse six. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. All right, so here's David. David's gone through everything they've gone through. He has these 600 men. Their houses have been burned down. They've lost all their wealth, and their wives and children have been kidnapped. David is in the same boat with them. But David has even more distress because now they've turned on him, and there are rumblings that they want to kill him, make him the scapegoat, take the all-against-all violence that is brewing within them, project it on one single victim, and try to deal with it that way. And so David is in deep distress. It would have been very easy at that moment for David himself to get bitter or to completely despair. And it would have been the end of the story. You'd never heard of this man. But David doesn't do that. David encourages himself. Why? Because there's no one else to do it. I think for most of you, most of the time, there are people around you that will encourage you. But there may be those moments when they're not. And that's when... Well, someone like David, anyway, encouraged himself. By the way, the person that can encourage themselves will rise to leadership. Because it's one... In ordinary times, a manager is enough. In times of crisis, you need a leader. And one of the characteristics of leadership in crisis is that they are able to encourage themselves. 
They don't need somebody to give them rosary reports. No, they can do it. They can go down within themselves. So how does David encourage himself? I mean, he, he's taking responsibility. He's going to encourage himself. But what does he do? He encourages himself in God. Come on now, don't forget God. I mean, don't forget God. When, when you're processing all that has gone wrong, all that's gone sideways, all that you've lost, all the pain you feel, don't forget about God. I told you I got letters from Nigeria, from people that, that uh, had heard this sermon. Finally, I started going to Nigeria. I can't remember what the first time I went, but I went three times, and I met lots of famous preachers in Nigeria. Nigeria has huge, huge, ridiculously huge churches. And I met uh, Benson Idahosa and Ayo Arishi Jaber and Michael Oka. And, but I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about Bishop Godduel Abu Makba. What a name. Bishop Godduel. Godduel. That's his name. First name Godduel Abu Makba. I just like saying Bishop Godduel Abu Makba. He came here a time or two in the 90s and preached. And, but um, Bishop Godduel Abu Makba, I remember him saying over on Frederick, we had him in to preach, and it was the, it was the simplest thing because I, it was, it was, we were going through hard times. And it's, it's so simple, I'm almost like embarrassed to say it, but I'm not. He says, when you make God bigger, you make your trouble smaller. <laughs> it sounds so simple. When you make God bigger... You make your trouble smaller. It helps to say it with a Nigerian accent. But I thought about that. You know, it's really true. That when you just focus on your trouble, your problem, your situation, your crisis, and if you just stare, it just grows and grows and grows, and you've forgotten about God. You know, you can block out the sun with a quarter if you just hold it close enough to your eye. And so, so what do you do? You say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going through this. I'm feeling this. I've suffered this. It's a crisis. It's a tragedy. It's terrible. But there is God, you know. And that's when you begin to think about God and you begin to speak to God and you begin to worship God and you begin to think, you know, God is from everlasting to everlasting. He's the Almighty. All things are possible with God. This doesn't have to be the end of the story. And you begin to magnify, you know that word? Magnify, it's a nice Bible word. Magnus in the Psalms, magnify the Lord. Well, yeah, I mean, magnify means to enlarge, not in reality, but in perception. All right, so we magnify God. God, God is all that God is. As I say, he's all the omnis. We can't make him bigger than he is, but he can become bigger in our perception. And when we make God bigger... We make our troubles smaller. See, I remember, I remember the day way back when when I almost quit because the problems were so big. The church was small and it was always small and we had no money. And, and I pulled up one day in front of our little church on 11th Street. This is way back when. And I looked at that little broken down building and a voice quoting scripture spoke to my mind saying, you see, you are accomplishing nothing at all. Yes great word for the day. I mean, it is a Bible verse. It's out of context in one sense, but I knew it was a Bible verse, so I thought, well, it must be God. God is telling me, Zahn, look, look, here he goes, Zahn. You see, it's right there in front of you. It's evident. You are accomplishing nothing. And I thought, well, all right, if, if God doesn't believe in me, then I guess the gig is up. And I went in the building not to do anything as a pastor or a preacher because I thought, okay, the gig's up. 
And I was just thinking, what am I going to do? I was trying to figure out that. And I had this moment of panic. It's like, I don't know how to do anything. Uh, I've, I've gambled everything on being a preacher, and I failed at that. And I was thinking, well, maybe I could sell suits because that way maybe I could get some decent clothes because I didn't have any. That's really what I thought. And I said, I'm going to go down to Lieberwoods and see if I can hire, get them to hire me. And I mean, I was, moving, I was moving towards the door. I was actually moving toward the door. I mean, I was ready to walk away forever. I didn't even want to walk away forever, but, you know, sometimes you've got to be realistic, son. And uh, I was on my way. And another voice, quoting another scripture, spoke to my heart. I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Psalm 27, 13. And in a flash, I realized, whoa, that first voice was not God. That first voice was the accuser, the Satan, Hasatan, the one that comes to tell you what you can't do and tell you that you're a failure. That isn't how God talks to you. But the devil can try to make you think it's God. And I thought, oh, God is saying, no, 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 don't give up. You'll see the goodness of God. You'll see my goodness in the land of the living. And I ran. I jumped up behind the pulpit in that little, tiny, little church, empty building on a Friday afternoon. And I preached a sermon to nobody there. It was a good sermon. It was impromptu, but it was good. I mean, a whole sermon, you know. I'm just making it up as I go. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to see the goodness of God. Not, not in the age to come, but I mean right here and now in the land of that. I'm preaching this sermon, preaching this. And then I give an altar call. And I respond to my altar call, run around, kneel down. And said, I'm not going to quit. I vowed I would not quit. What was I doing? I was encouraging myself, because there wasn't anybody else there, in God. Number four, get a word from God. Verse eight, David inquired of the Lord. Well, that's what I've been preaching for the past two weeks. You know, I was preaching on... Uh, um, for the weary and worn. And I talked about Rochester Falls and getting the word from the Lord. Last Sunday I talked about the God who speaks. The living God is the God who speaks. The God who knows you and loves you and calls you by name will speak to you. You can learn to discern the voice of God and this is good news because one word from God can change your life. And I, you know, so I've been preaching on that. I don't think I'm going to preach much. I just kind of did tell that story about hearing the word of the Lord. Number five, reorient your vision. The end of verse eight. You shall surely overtake them and without fail, recover all. Okay, this is the word of the Lord for David. I mean, the ruins of his house are still smoldering. All of his possessions are gone. His family is still kidnapped, and he doesn't even know where the Amalekites have gone. But he gets this word, you'll recover all. It's David's word, and he holds to it. I'm going to recover all. He doesn't know how. It's just a word, right? It doesn't correspond with reality, but it is a word. Recover all. And he holds on to it, and he begins to preach that word to his discouraged men. And it turns the tide. He preaches his word of faith to them, and faith begins to rise in their heart. And they turn away from their bitterness. They turn away from a focus on their loss and their anger. And they, 
you know, faith comes by hearing, and David is saying something, and faith is beginning to rise, that maybe this doesn't have to be the end of the story. Maybe there is a way forward. This was David's word. Now, I can't promise you that you will recover everything you've lost. Well, I mean, maybe in the age to come. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact, but maybe everything that dies someday comes back. That's the great poet, prophet, Bruce Springsteen. Didn't want you to think it was Dylan, because I can quote other people too. Um, but in this age, in this time, I can't promise you that you will always recover everything. What I can promise you, though, is that you can recover. You can recover. You don't have to stay as you are. The blows you've suffered don't have to ruin your soul. Why? 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 How can you say such a thing? How can you say such an audacious thing? Jesus! <laughs> you know, I am a Christian. <laughs> I do believe that Jesus is raised from the dead and is Lord, and I believe that Jesus is our healer. And I believe he's our helper. And I believe he doesn't leave us in our woundedness. He comes to us and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus knows what it is to be wounded. He has wounds. We bring our wounds to the wounds of Jesus. And when we lay our wounds on his wounds, somehow it doesn't multiply woundedness, but it tends toward healing. So the word I have is that you can recover. You may not recover all things, but you can recover. And so it came to pass that David and his men recovered all. Verse 18. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing. Whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought everything back. Now that's how I ended my sermon in 1993. And it's more or less how I end the books, the one written in 97, the one written in 2008. When life hits you hard, do what David did on his worst day. Weep, but don't get better, don't get bitter. Encourage yourself in God, get a word from God, reorient your vision and recover all. Amen. I believe it. It's a good sermon, but how you preach a sermon when you're 34 may not always be how you preach it when you're 61. A lot of, lot of living since then. And so I believe everything I just preached. I do believe that. But I also believe that maybe I'm a little wiser now, and I want to add something else. Sometimes, faith can work in your life in such a way that you're like David in this story. That's how the original sermon and the two books work. David got hit hard. He wept, but he didn't get bitter. Eventually, he dried his tears, and he rose up, and he began to do something. And here's what he did, and he recovered all. And sometimes you can do that. That's good. I believe in that. 
Sometimes you can be the heroic David in your story. Amen. But sometimes you can't. There are other times in your life where as this story, if you're going to lay this, this story from 1 Samuel 30 over your life, you're not David. You're a Hinoam and Abigail. You say, who? Well, these are the two wives of David. Yeah, he had a couple of them. Actually, he had a third one, Michael, but that's another story. And then he'd pick up some more along the way. Again, that's complicated. Let's just leave it at the fact that he has two wives and they're both gone. He had a spare, but I mean, they both got taken away, so. Sometimes, some, see, I haven't preached this part yet. I'm still working on it. So, sometimes you're David in the story, but sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're Ahinoam or Abigail. Thing is, we don't always get to be David. I mean, think about Abigail. I mean, what can she do? She can weep, and that's about it. She's not getting a plan. She's not, she's not rising up. She's not attacking. She's not. But what she can do is she can wait. If, if she has any hope at all, I can imagine a Hinoam and Abigail saying, well, you know, this, is a, this has turned out poorly. We're in a bad situation here. But one of them can say, don't forget about David. He'll come. Don't forget about David. I mean, we can't get ourselves out of this. But don't forget about David. I believe that he's not going to give up, us, give, up, give up on us. He's mighty. He'll find a way. And of course, who, who is David? David is the prefiguring of the true root of Jesse, the true son of David, who is Jesus Christ. So yes, some days you're David. And you're getting a word and you're you know, and all of this and reorienting your vision. And you got a word of faith and you're rising up and you're attacking the enemy. And I love those days. Those are great days. When you turn it around, just faith working in your life. But some days you're down so low, hit so hard, that you're just Abigail. You're a Hinoam, and you're just saying, if I'm going to get out of this, it's because Jesus is going to come help me. And let me tell you, that is legitimate hope. Jesus is our Savior. So... I don't want, if, if you've truly been overwhelmed, and, and I'm going to, I don't think they're here in person. I'm going to dedicate this sermon, because I know they're online, if they're not here in person, I don't think they're here. I'm dedicating this sermon to Mike and Renee. You know who I'm talking about, you know who you are. And uh, I'm not saying that you can do anything right now, except hold on that Jesus is going to come to you. And Jesus is going to help you. He's, he hasn't forgotten you. I know you just feel, you're, you're, you've been hit so hard, and you're captive, and all of that. Jesus knows where you are and he's going to come and sometimes you just need to say the battle is not yours but it's the lord's sometimes the battle is not yours but it's the lord's and just sit in the hope that because the battle is the lord's he's going to come and fight your battle for you and rescue you and restore you amen let's pray Lord, I, I preached this sermon today not because I'd run out of ideas on what to preach about. That's not an issue. But because I know a message like this has helped people in times past. 
And the idea for it first came when I said, a lot of people are going through a hard time. And Lord, I'd know that about people in this church. I mean, yes, a lot of us connected with the events in the world, in our, in our nation, but some people are just, it would be a hard time right now for some people if there were no pandemic, no economic crisis, none of that stuff. It would still be a hard time. It's just a confluence of evil events that seems have come upon people. The Amalekites have raided. And Lord, maybe, uh, maybe they can rise up. Give them a word, God. Don't let them get bitter. Shed tears with them, but don't let them get bitter. Help them rise up. Help them encourage themselves in you, in God, in the Lord. Give them a word. <clears throat> Reorient their vision so they can see the vision. I don't have to stay here. This doesn't have to be the end of the story. I can, I can recover. But Lord, if they've been hit so hard, that there's just no capacity for rising up like that. If that just can't happen, then, Lord, the battle's yours. It's not theirs. They can't fight it. But what we can do, Jesus, is we can say this much. Jesus, save us. Come to the rescue, Jesus. Don't leave us like this. Don't leave us alone. Jesus, you've said, I will never forsake you. Jesus, you said that we should cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us, so we're doing that. And Jesus, we, we ask you to now come fight our battle for us when we can't fight it. Lord, if you can give us strength, give us strength, and we'll fight. But if we can't, then if we're too weak, if we're hit too hard, then Jesus, come. Be the hero in the story, Jesus. Because Jesus, you are the hero. Sometimes, Lord, we, just, we need to be more humble and we just give up the idea of being the hero. Jesus, will you come and be the hero in our story? Come to us. Rescue us. Save us. In Jesus' name. Amen.